I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's stand as we open God's Word together. And many of you uh, know that we have been looking for uh, months now at the book of 1 Corinthians. And it just so happens that uh, we have arrived at chapter 15 at just the right time and just the right day because this is Paul's resurrection chapter of all the chapters that he wrote in the Bible. And so I'm going to read the first few verses here in this chapter, and then we will study a lot of these verses this morning as it relates to what I'm calling the Easter difference. Now, we've, the title of this series has been The Difference, and Jesus makes all the difference and should make you different as a person. This morning, I want us to see the difference the resurrection makes. And he says in, in chapter 15 and verse 1, Brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel. I proclaim to you, you received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believed to no purpose. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that phrase, according to the Scriptures, is not talking about the Gospels at this point, which were also still being compiled. According to the Scriptures meant according to everything the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, everything that had been foresaw the coming of Christ. And it happened exactly the way that God said it would. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Day. Thank you for a faith that is real and alive today. And Lord, I pray that you would fill this place with your presence and your power. That same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, may it stir us to know you passionately, to make you known, and to be different. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. Some of you were here Friday night for a Good Friday service, and, and my son relayed a story that we've had a chance to talk about a few times from when he was in New York, and, and uh, some of you have even seen this video on, uh, maybe on Fox News O'Reilly Factor, but Jesse Waters, who is known for uh, his man-on-the-street interviews, Waters World, I always love it when he'd ask about political topics and things like that because it really reveals that 60-70% of the people who vote to put people in office in this nation don't have a clue what's even going on in their own backyard. And it's kind of scary to kind of think how little we know. And it's even more scary when you look at the interview that he did this past week, and, and, and Ken and a, uh, some of his friends were up there, and, and they interviewed even a couple of uh, Kent's friends right there on the street, uh, asking them about Easter, and it was amazing how many of them didn't even know what Easter was. As Kent pointed out Friday night, one even thought that the Easter bunny was a story in the Old Testament. And so it's just kind of baffles the mind how many people, and some couldn't even answer. They're like, I don't, I don't even know, what, it, what is it, Mother's Day? What, what is, what, what's this Sunday? They just had no clue what Easter was all about. And it reminded me of a, a time when a pastor was asking some students, some, some children in church, what is Easter? And, and, and having called the kids up front and had his microphone and was asking them, it was kind of embarrassing some parents. He chose one child, and a child said, uh, Easter... Is all about when the pilgrims came over. And the parents were like, oh man, you know, we've we got to do a better job. And Sunday school teachers were embarrassed and everything else. And then 
Then he asked another child, can you tell me what Easter is? And the kid said, I think it has not to do with the pilgrims coming, but the wise men coming. It has to do with when Jesus was born, right? And the pastor was like, you're getting closer. But, but the pastor had one of his own children, a PK, sitting right there in the crowd. And he was like, surely my son's going to get this right. And so he, he held the microphone down. And he said, can you tell me what Easter is, son? And in front of the whole church, he said, it's when Jesus came out of the grave. And the pastor felt so good that his son knew that Easter is when Jesus came out of the grave. And about that time, his son said, and if he saw his shadow, he ran back inside, and it meant we were going to have six more weeks of winter time. <laughs> well, so, so many people know little about Easter, and some know less than they realize that they know. For the past three months, we've been looking at this wonderful letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. I say wonderful. It wasn't so wonderful for them to receive it the first time because it was very convicting. Paul was convincing the church at Corinth that they should be different that they should live differently than those around them, that the gospel should be transformational. It should change the way we think. It should shape what we believe. And as a result, our values, our morals, ethics, everything should follow. And this world should look at us and say something about us, that we are absolutely different. Now he focuses specifically on the resurrection. It's as if Paul gets to this point and he says, I've taught you, I've reminded you, I've reinforced everything I can about the gospel and how it should affect your life. But if you don't get this down, it's not going to make a difference. If you don't understand this, if you can't embrace the fact that Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, was buried, if you don't embrace the fact that he rose again from the grave, everything else is in vain and worthless and useless. And so he wants to drive this point home. They have to get this. And church this morning, let me tell you, we've got to get it. The, the light bulbs have to come on. We have to say, yes, Christ is risen indeed. And it will change and shape everything about us. It makes all the difference in the world, and it will make you a different person. There were some who had kind of embraced, I know we, we think existentialism is a kind of a modern-day thought that, well, you know, what, what kind of works for you, it kind of goes along with moral relativism. And, and if it helps you to believe in something, if it helps you to believe in heaven, if it helps you to believe in a resurrection, even if Christ didn't really rise from the grave, then, then it's okay for you to believe that if it makes you a better person. And, and, and that kind of thinking even existed there in the first century. And Paul was confronting that and said, no, 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 this is something that literally happened. Jesus visibly, literally, bodily rose from the grave. It's not just something to make us feel better about ourselves and, and, and give us some kind of inspiration. And so I want us to ha take about three considerations this morning into account. The, the reasons I think that many Christians do not experience victory or walk with confidence, live differently than the world, is that we're not convinced deep down that Jesus really is alive. And, and so Paul wants us to be convinced. Here's the first consideration. I don't want you to take into account, and that's the resurrection evidence. Paul's going to lay out some evidence. And, and, and we need to understand that being convinced of the truth is our solid foundation. It, it's not how we feel about it this morning, but it's the fact that it is truth whether we accept it or not. And, and being convinced, absolutely convinced of the proof of the resurrection and the truth of the resurrection is what gives us a solid foundation. So, so we looked at these first few verses, and, and he says, basically, I've given you the gospel that Christ died and that he rose again. And then he begins to build on that. 
in verse 4. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, just like the Scriptures prophesied. And then he appeared to Cephas or, or Peter. That was a big, Remember, even when he appeared to the ladies, he said, go and tell Peter. It was very important for Peter, who probably felt emotionally defeated because he had denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times. He had did something he had said he would never do. Some of you sitting here this morning under the sound of my voice are thinking to yourself, you know, there's been some times in my life that I've done things I said I would never do. I'm living with shame. I'm living with regret. They said, go tell Peter. Well, he appeared to Peter. Then to the other disciples who became apostles. He, he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, most of whom Paul is able to argue here. Most of these guys, it's as if Paul's saying, hey, I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to this area where all this took place. It happened, and I've, I've encountered these eyewitnesses. Many of them are still with us today. Some of them have passed on. And he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. Now, I think of James. That's a remarkable comment because think about it. James was the half-brother of Christ. And he has a letter in the New Testament as well. James and Jude, the other half-brother of Christ that's mentioned, uh, both rejected Christ when he walked on this earth before his death. His own brothers did not have faith in who he was even though Jesus lived the perfect sinless life before them, some of you know full well that it doesn't make life easy on you if you have a perfect older sibling, right? Uh, I mean, I wasn't perfect, but my brother and sister thought I was. (laughs) No, I I wasn't perfect by by any stretch of the imagination, but if you ever had an older brother or sister that just seemed to never get in trouble and do no wrong, James and Jude had a hard time believing in Jesus. As a matter of fact, they couldn't wait for him to go to the Feast of the Tabernacles and, and make his ministry public so that somebody would call him on it and make him have to stand. So James and Jude are great examples of resurrection evidence because after Jesus rose from the grave, these brothers were willing to become martyrs for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to die because they so believed that their brother was the Son of God who was risen with power. And last of all, Paul says, you want a real example (laughs) as to one abnormally born, he appeared to me. Paul was out persecuting the church. He was having Christians stoned to death. He was there at the martyrdom of Stephen. And so Paul is saying, let my life be an example. Let my life be evidence. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them Yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, so you have believed. He gives plenty of resurrection evidence. It was important for Paul, to, to, for them not to just slip into some kind of existential, hey, if only you believe it strong enough in your heart. This wasn't a Hallmark Channel kind of faith. You know, if you just believe it, then it will become true. He was saying, look, this is true whether you believe it or not. Here are the facts, and you need to understand the facts of the situation. And and we could go on and on with the evidence of the resurrection. Pastor Ben spoke of some evidence this morning during our uh, worship service this morning at sunrise. The, The birth and the continuation of the church in Jerusalem is major evidence. If there was a place that it would have been hard to start something that was not of the traditional Jewish faith, it was in the city of Jerusalem. 
And, and so the birth and continuation of the church is evidence of the resurrection of Christ. The change of worship from Sabbath Saturday to Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. When you come and, and you look at the rest of the New Testament, along with 1 Corinthians, when you look at the book of Acts, when you look at all the evidence in the New Testament, something remarkable happens. And that is that people who were formerly committed to protecting Sabbath worship, who would not consider gathering corporately on any other day of the week, all of a sudden find themselves gathering on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And so that's great resurrection evidence. The next area we could point to is the gospel writer's record of women as the first witnesses. Now, some of you are thinking, well, why is that evidence of the resurrection? Well, in the first century, sorry ladies, but a woman's testimony wasn't worth much. And if somebody was going to make up a story, make up a counterfeit story, then they would have probably used the most prominent men in the area as the eyewitnesses when they wrote their story. But because they used women, the only explanation of that is because that's the way it happened. Jesus appeared to women first. There would be no other grounds, no other reason that the gospel writers would have used women as the first eyewitnesses. We could talk about the radical change in the disciples. They went from being cowards to being martyrs. They went from hiding out to saying, I so believe that I saw the resurrected Jesus Christ that I'm willing to die for Christ. We could talk about the unlikely nature of all the other theories. Like those who would say, yeah, we know there is some evidence in the first century that he appeared to hundreds of people even at one time. But as one theory says, that was all mass hallucination. The, the, somebody had a big pot-burning bonfire somewhere. They were all breathing the same smoke, and they all believed that they saw Jesus. You know, people get stoned and they see things like that, and, and, and so... Well, the unlikelihood of that kind of mass hallucination or the wrong tomb theory, hey, they forgot which tomb they laid him in. Forgot where he was buried. Most famous individual that ever walked on the earth, they you know, forgot where he was buried. Uh, there was no one in the first century who could discredit the story. And the evidence goes on and on and on. And then the evidence of the Bible itself, the most authenticated document from antiquity. The most authenticated document from antiquity. And the Gospels tell us that Jesus Christ rose for you say well, what do you mean authenticated typically if you have a copy of something from antiquity you, you're kind of like well that that's kind of cool if you have two or three copies that agree then you're like oh wait a minute that's very cool that means we probably have a very authentic document if you can go back to antiquity and say within the first couple of centuries these documents are in agreement then you're in great shape and so when People who come and talk about ancient literature and they say, you know, we have ten copies of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Ten copies. And because we have ten copies and they are in agreement with one another, then we can be pretty sure we have the authentic version of the Gallic Wars according to Julius Caesar. They, they can point out that we have 190 copies of Homer's Iliad that dates back within the first couple hundred years of when it was written. 190 copies. See, this is in the day when things uh, were not able to be taken to the printing press that would be invented in the 15th century. This is when it cost money to copy something, and, and a lot of detail had to go into it. So 190 copies of Homer's Iliad has caused all literature scholars to say, authentic, we can trust it. Listen, we have 5,000 
500 plus ancient manuscripts of the New Testament dating back within the first couple hundred years. Of the books of the New Testament, of the Gospels of the New Testament, and in their different forms and places and locations, they all are in agreement with this fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. That's plenty of evidence. Now, listen, I know we've got, it's got to come to a place where we believe it, where we embrace it. We embrace it as God's truth. It's got to be real in our life. But the evidence is there. You don't have to have blind faith to be a Christian. Back in the 1980s, there was a story of a little girl, and this story became famous because of preachers like me who love to repeat the story. But a little girl who was singing, whether it was in a mall or a public location, I can't remember, but the little girl was singing the song, Jesus Loves Me, when a skeptic, an atheist, walks by and he says, little girl, you don't mean to tell me you really believe Jesus loves you? And she's like, yes, sir. Well, how do you know that Jesus loves you? And she says, well, because the Bible tells me so. And she goes back to singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little girl, you don't really believe that just because the Bible says it, that Jesus is real and that he loves you. Yeah, I believe it, because the Bible tells me so. So you believe everything the Bible tells you? Yeah, I believe everything the Bible tells me. And he said, well, the Bible says that there was a man who was swallowed by a whale and was spit back up to tell about it. You believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? She goes, well, no, because the Bible doesn't say whale. The Bible says big fish. She knew her Bible. He didn't. But she said, the Bible says he was swallowed by a big fish and that the big fish spit him back up and that he lived to tell about it. And I believe that. You believe that. You believe Jesus Christ really rose from the grave. I believe that with all my heart. Everything the Bible says, Jesus, Jonah, and all that, well, I just I don't understand. How will you ever prove to me that, like, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish and lived to tell about it? And she says, well, I don't know that I can prove it yet, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him all about it. And he, being cynical and kind of a smart aleck, said, well, what if Jonah's not in heaven. And she thought for a minute, looked up at him and said, well, then I guess you'll have to ask him. <laughs> we can be quick thinking as believers. 1 Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. What Peter was saying is what Paul's saying here. Know why you believe what you believe. Know how to defend it. Know how to stand up for it. When people come at you and say, there's no real Jesus who is really alive and well today, you point out real clearly that Christians don't have to check their brains at the door. We know what we believe. We know that there is evidence for what we believe, and we stand on it without apology. Second thing I want you to consider this morning is resurrection effects. Being converted by the truth is our secure future. So see, if the resurrection isn't real, we don't really have any hope for tomorrow, right? We can't sing because he lives. I can face tomorrow if he doesn't live. And so the resurrection effects, that we can be converted by the truth, the gospel can be something we embrace and we receive and it change our lives. And, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 28. I'm going to read through this and I'm going to give you a hermeneutics assignment that I give um, uh, folks in my Bible class at Emmanuel College, a little hermeneutics test. Um, there's something in Scripture that we call a, a story shift. There, there's a, usually within a story shift, there's what I call a hinge verse that we're Things are kind of going one way or talking about one thing, and then when you get to that hinge verse, the tone changes. It shifts 
Maybe from negative positive, maybe from one direction to another. So I want you to look and see if you can find the hinge verse in verses 12 through 28 as we kind of work our way through. It says, now if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Somebody's going, duh, get it. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is without foundation. And, by the way, so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if indeed the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. They're just dead. Nothing else to come. If we have placed our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. We are of all, one translation says, we're of all men most pitiable. <clears throat> but now, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as Adam, in Adam, all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, the people of Christ. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for he has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Did you see the story shift? I gave you a little hint there, didn't I? On the count of three, tell me what verse it was. One, two, three. All right, verse 20. It's everything is kind of doom and gloom if we don't have the resurrection. But because we do have the resurrection, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, and that makes all the difference. The resurrection effects, being converted by the truth, is our secure future because everything hinged on two words, but now. It was all bad news, but now, because Christ has raised, we have hope, we have a future, we can look forward by faith to our own resurrection one day. We see that but now language in Ephesians chapter 2 when it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, us uh, being children of wrath. And, and in Ephesians 2, 4, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive with Christ. But now, the but now effects of the resurrection should touch you, and the but now effects of the resurrection should touch me. They are incredible, and, and if you will, tolerate me just for a moment. I want to share the effects in my life that should be in your life from A to Z. I would be abandoned, but now I'm accepted and adopted in the Beloved. I would be beat up and broken down, but now I am beat up in, I mean, I am built up in the faith. I would be a castaway, but now, because of the resurrection, I am captured by God's grace. I would be 
damaged goods, but now I am delighted to do His will. I would be empty on the inside, but now I am encouraged and empowered on the inside. I would be a failure if I were left on my own. But now, because of the resurrection, I am a faithful follower of Christ with a future. I am forgiven and I am free. I would be grim and gloomy today, but now, because of the resurrection, I have grace and He has made this day glorious. I would be talking about come hell or high water, but now I'm saying come heaven and hope, hallelujah. I would be inferior. Indeed, I had the inferiority complex when I was a child. But now, because of the resurrection, I'm not inferior, but I am inspired to do all that I can for the glory of God. I would be joyless and jaded, but now I have Jesus and joy unspeakable. I would be kicked around by the devil, but now I'm a king's kid and a royal priesthood unto our God. I would be a loser, but now I have life eternal and abundant. I would be miserable, and life would be meaningless, but now I feel marvelous because I have a message that has changed me. I would be a nobody, but now, because of the resurrection, the Bible says I am nobility. I would be, but now. I would be an outcast, but now I'm overwhelmed and an overcomer. I would be, Paul says in this passage, pitiable of all men, most pitiable. But now I am a promise and a possibility, and as I used to sing as a child, a great big bundle of, anybody remember? Potentiality. Because of the resurrection of Christ. I would be a quitter, but now I am qualified to be a partaker in the inheritance. I would be rejected, but now I am rescued, I am redeemed, I am regenerated, I am renewed, and one day I will be rewarded. I would be in sinful condition or sad shape, but now I am saved and sanctified and satisfied with Jesus. I would be troubled by the enemy, but now I am triumphant over the enemy. I would be unhappy and undesirable, but I am unstoppable and unwavering because of the resurrection. I would talk about how I've been victimized, but now I know that I am victorious. I would talk about how we are weak, but now I know that I am well established in the truth. I would be exasperated, but now this morning, I'm excited. I would be yearning in my soul, but now I'm not because I am yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. And I would be a zero and have zero motivation. But now, I am zealous for the name that is above all names because at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the effects of the resurrection on my life. It should be the effects of the resurrection on your life. I was, but now. I was, but now. I believe the evidence, and I've seen the effects. The, the hymn uh, we were singing this morning, or, uh, I was walking around in the office, Pastor Ben caught me at least whistling and singing. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Are you convinced of that evidence? Have you seen the effects of the resurrection? If so, you can experience it all. Paul then points out the resurrection experience, being committed to the truth. This is where a lot of us will fall short. We'll say, yeah, you got me. I, I, I believe the evidence, and I've seen the effects. 
I embrace that, but I'm not ready to be that sold-out, committed Christian for Christ. I got some things I want to hold on to in my life. The resurrection experience is being committed to the truth. That's our spiritual formation. That's our growing in grace. That's experiencing what God has for us on a regular basis. In verse 29, we see one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. Now, typically, you don't want to build your theology on one verse. You want to build your theology on all of the Bible. And you specifically don't want to take any one verse out of context to build your theology, and and especially if it seems to be controversial. But he says, otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? Uh Uh-oh. I don't think we've been practicing that lately. If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? People have messed that verse up for years. Baptized for the dead. Okay, man, this is wonderful news. Because my friend or my family member, my, my neighbor, they died without Christ. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get baptized for them. Somebody just baptized me and it'll be accounted to them. Well, one theological problem you have with that is the rest of the New Testament teaches us that baptism doesn't do anything to save you. And so if you could be baptized for them, it wouldn't be enough to save them because being baptized yourself didn't save you. It was an outward picture of what took place inwardly when you put your faith and trust in Christ. The thief on the cross that we looked at on Friday night, who Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, I doubt had time to be baptized. But he put his faith and trust in the living Lord. So what is he talking about baptism for the dead? Well, there's, there's about three interpretations of this. One of them I'm kind of refuting already, and that's that people would actually be baptized for those who had already died and didn't put their faith and trust in Christ. But when you look at the construction here, in the original language, there were a couple of interpretations that would have been popular uh, throughout Christendom. One is that it may be concerning one's dying to self. Baptized concerning your death. The fact that you died when you came to faith in Christ. The old man is dead and the new man has come to life. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says, your old nature is crucified and sin's power has been abolished. And he's explaining in that same chapter, for we were buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. That was a picture of the fact that the old you died and a brand new you, a recreated you, a born again you came to life. And and so that may be what he's saying here. Baptized, and that word for can be translated, often is translated in the Bible as concerning. So he could have have been trying to say, for those who were baptized concerning their spiritual death and, and, and their spiritual rebirth and coming to life, but possibly, and some argue this, John MacArthur argues this, possibly he was talking about those who were baptized concerning the influence of somebody else's testimony on their life. In other words, somebody who is in heaven now lived in such a way that when they were alive, they inspired you to put your faith and trust in Christ. Their life made a difference in your life, and so you were baptized because of the influence of the testimony of somebody who was already with the Lord. How many of you have friends or family members this morning that are with the Lord, but their life led you to faith in Christ? Anybody? Amen. That would... He's talking about those of you who were baptized concerning, if you don't have the hope that they're with Jesus, then you don't have hope for yourself. And what Paul is saying is we do have hope that those who died in the Lord already with him and their influence on you is not in vain. And so I don't know which one of these 
the, the second or third interpretation you want to embrace, I, I kind of believe that the first one is more intended for the context here. Because when you look at the next few verses, you talk about how we should be different. The old man is dead, the new man has come to life. And so, if you look back at the passage with me, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? In other words, why am I risking my life for this gospel? I affirm by the pride in you that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. So you see, Paul, I was baptized concerning my death, Paul could say. I die every day. I die to self. I take up my cross. I follow Christ. If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, what good does that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The resurrection is not real. We don't really have much purpose or motivation to do anything in this world. Uh, the, 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 the biggest question I have for the atheist and the cynic and the skeptic and the secular humanist is, what do you wake up for every day? And I know their reply would be, well, if this life is all there is, I want to make the most of it. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You've been around some people, what Paul is saying, you've been around some people that don't believe this message. You've been around some people that don't believe the resurrection. And, and so there's no uh, motivation for them to live a godly life, to be committed to anything. And they're kind of rubbing off on you, bad company. Remember that, teenagers? Bad company corrupts good character. And based on this text, it's not just their, their behavior, it's their values, it's their beliefs. The reason they act different is because they don't believe what you believe. And he says, become right-minded and stop sinning because some people are ignorant about God. <laughs> we kind of started with that point, right? Some people just don't know. He says, I say this to your shame. The reason they don't know is because you haven't made it known. If you really believe... Paul is saying, you'll live it out. If you really believe it, you come to church this Easter Sunday and you say, I am here because I believe Jesus died for my sins and I believe he rose from the grave. And the Apostle Paul would say to us, I want to see how you live once you walk out these doors this morning. Then we'll know if you really believe it. I want to see if you demonstrate it by your commitments, your service in the kingdom. You're going to bat for Jesus in this world. Then he promises them, those who have, those who have died in the Lord, look at this a wonderful benediction to this, this chapter in verse 50 and following. We often read this at funeral services and gravesides, but we should read it while we're alive and, and be inspired by it. He says, brothers, I tell you this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and, and corruption cannot inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet where the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed because this corruption or this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility. There's going to be a resurrection where we get a new and glorified body one day and he says this mortal must be clothed in immortality. Now when this corruptible is put on incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't skip the therefore. If you read all of that, you say, praise God, hallelujah, I am so looking forward to heaven one day, and you miss the therefore, then you miss why Paul said all of this leading up to this. He said all of this, therefore... My dear brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
So I think of folks like Lee Strobel, who set out to prove as an investigative journalist that there's no way Jesus could have risen from the grave. And yet, as he applied all of those things, again, remember, Christians don't have to check their brains at the door. As he applied all those things he had learned about good journalism, good investigative journalism, and he, and he really looked at all the facts of the situation, he came back to put his own faith and trust in Christ because he said, a person with common sense, a person with understanding would look at all the evidence and say, there's one thing that's for sure, and that's that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And so he, he becomes a Christian and has written books that have touched thousands. Any of y'all read one of Lee Strobel's books? Raise your hand. Okay, so it's a good number of you that have read, read Strobel's books. Josh McDowell came from a different perspective. He wanted to, uh, as a lawyer, take this whole thing to court. And so he looks and, and asks the question, as an atheist at one time in his life, he said, I'm asking the question, if I were to put Jesus on trial, would the verdict be that he didn't rise from the grave? And so when Josh McDowell did all of his research, like a lawyer would present his case, and it came time for him to examine it, and we know, you and I know that the Holy Spirit had to also be working in his life, but he came to the conclusion that Christ had to have risen from the grave, and he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a verdict. And he believed that Jesus lives. But what about your life? What if your life were exhibit A? You say, well, I believe it. Has it changed how you live? Has it made a difference in your life? If Christ were on trial and the world were watching this great courtroom scene, is Jesus the Son of God? who died for our sins, has he risen with power and you were placed not on the witness stand, but as evidence. If your life was examined before the jury as evidence, would the jury of this world say, you know what? Jesus has to be alive and well because I see the change he made in them. See the change he made in their life. Now listen, if they don't see the change, Romans 1 says that they're still without excuse because God has made himself known. But would your life, would your life testify to that fact today? That Christ is alive because he lives in you. Would you bow your heads with me?